Good morning, everyone. I hope that everyone is doing well. We are in the middle of winter. Our nation is still at war. The secular new year has begun and the president of Harvard from the congressional hearing has resigned. This is not a friendly news update. Uh, this relates to the world today, and what we'll be discussing in Safer Shemos. They're still so giving you the million dollar salary. Oh, okay, sorry, thank you. <laughs> Uh, so we begin with a new Sefer, a new book of the Torah, and the name of the book is Shemos, and the name of the Parsha is Shemos. Parsha Shemos 2024, the title for today's class is Revitalizing Our Identity. This month, the month of Teves, is dedicated by Sylvia Levy and family in commemoration of the 10th yard set of her beloved father, Yitzchak Moshe. Isaac Sterenthal, Zichrono Livracha, lived a full life that was filled with purpose and unrelenting. You're being cut up. Very responsible. And honest, firm, and loyal. You could always count on his support and his word. Isaac's love of family and his quiet acts of kindness are transcendental. His family has been deeply inspired by his example and are forever transformed by his abundant blessings. So I know we all join the Levy family and Sylvia in particular in davening for the departed soul and then Aliyah for the neshama of Isaac Sterenthal, Yitzchak ben Moshe. As we progress into the parsha we will be discussing the concept of the Jewish people as they enter into slavery and the various themes and highlights of the Parsha. Today, in our times, I believe that a more important consideration than the vanquishing of anti-Semitism is understanding what it is that Hashem wants us, the Jewish people, to be learning and doing at this time. There is zero question that we Jewish people must take up arms to fight for the security of our people and Eretz Yisrael in particular. Included in the fighting for our protection is obviously davening for all the successful outcomes that we are seeking for our protection. Other than these critical and crucial activities, what should be our national focus and action plan? Parsha Shemos introduces for the first time in Jewish history the recognition by a monarch, in particular a non-Jewish monarch, that the Jewish people have arrived. We are a nation. Paro declares the Jewish people at the beginning of the book of Shemos, am Yisrael. Behold, the nation, the children of Israel are mighty and they're more numerous than we are. And then, of course, this declaration is immediately followed by the strategic planning of Paro and his people to outsmart and ultimately enslave the Jewish people. How did it happen that the family of Yaakov, which started as a group of a mere 70 souls, somehow managed to evolve into nationhood instead of assimilating into the Egyptian people or other nations? If we just think about the sheer numbers <clears throat> and the length of time that the Jewish people were in Egypt and the way that they survived 
for first the initial 54 years of Yosef's monarchy before the passing of Yosef, and then for the next 130 years or so as slaves in Egypt, we do need to ask ourselves, how did we go from the number 70 to a recognized nation? And how did we actually not only achieve nationhood, but establish a long-term and national identity while in a foreign land with so few members? In today's world, we too need to answer the question of refurbishing and reestablishing our national security and sense of nationhood, nationhood while facing severe existential threats. Right? One of the most unsettling things since October 7th is the recognition by Jews across the globe that anti-Semitism is everywhere, not only alive, but incredibly virulent and popular. Even today, it is unclear if there is a gradual movement of Jews out of Israel. You, know, you read articles that talk about the many, many hundreds of thousands that left, the several hundred thousand that came back, and it's not so clear that we yet have the same population from before October 7th as after October 7th. So the question is, what indeed will be the long-term effects of the current crisis on the resolve of Jews everywhere, including in Israel, to stay in Israel, move to Israel, or move away from Israel? So therefore, I say that we need to really visit the question of strengthening our identity. From the outset of today's class, let us posit that the crucial message of Sefer Shemos is contained in its appellation, in the title of the book. The word Shemos means names. Thus, the unfolding of everything in Sefer Shemos, from the beginning of the enslavement to the redemption and what comes after, is built on the theme of names, specifically names. A name is an identity. And today we will show that the names of the Jewish people are the very reason we went into exile and merit redemption by Hashem. So let's talk about questions specifically related to the text and the storyline of our parsha. The first six sentences of the parsha, mostly in you know, on almost all aspects, repeat information that we already know. The Torah says these are, these are the names of the Jewish people that went down to Egypt with Yaakov, each man in his household, and repeats the names of the 12 tribes and pointing out that at that time, Yosef was in Egypt. It then mentions that they were 70 altogether and that Yosef died and his brothers died and that entire generation and the Jewish people proliferated greatly. They were tremendous numbers of Jews that began to emerge. That's the first six sentences of the parasha. Most of that information we already know from the book of Bereshis, the 70 souls, the names of the 12 tribes, even that Yosef died, and already at the end of Parshas Vayigash, um, the Torah tells us about the increase of the Jewish people. Okay, maybe this is an additional increase, but the question is, why is it being repeated here at the beginning of Shemos? One would have thought that the book of Shemos would begin with a new king arose over Egypt that did not know Yosef and the strategic plan to enslave the Jewish people. But instead, we, re we begin with a recap of information that we mostly already know. Sen question number two. Why are so few sentences of Parsha Shemos devoted to actually describing the torture and the enslavement of the Jewish people. 
And this is all the more difficult given the fact that the enslavement of the Jewish people took place in a period that lasted well over 100 years. That's a hundred years of tremendous oppression, a hundred years of some sort of monarchy torturing us, ruling over us, killing our children, et cetera, et cetera. And there's really not too many sentences. I think when you're accounted, there are about 11 sentences that describe that entire period. Okay, so why so few sentences devoted to the details of the enslavement that lasts well over a hundred years? Question number four, what is the significance I'm sorry, question number three. Why are so many sentences, in contrast, spent on Hashem's conversation with Moshe at the burning bush regarding sending him to Pyro and the Jewish people? There are way more sentences describing the back and forth between Moshe at the burning bush than the hundred plus years of enslavement. The sentences of Moshe at the burning bush are approximately 40 sentences. 40 sentences describing that entire interaction between Hashem and Moshe, and 11 sentences that describe 100 plus years of slavery. How do we understand that? And question number four is what is the significance and connection of all of these things that we just mentioned, along with the other highlights of the Parsha? We mentioned the repeated information, the strategic plan of power to kill uh, the Jewish people, right? the conversation with Moshe and Hashem at, at the burning bush, let's look at a brief summary of the rest of the Parsha. We have the story of the Jewish midwife's refusal to kill the male newborns. Then we have the marriage of Amram and Yocheved, which the Torah describes as a man from Levi, married a daughter of Levi, and their birth of Moshe. Then we have Moshe killing the Egyptian taskmaster and escaping to Midian. We have Moshe rescuing the daughters of Yisro, the shepherdesses, at the well and helping them water their sheep. We have Moshe taking his wife and children with him and his near-death experience and the fact that his wife Zipporah needs to save him with a timely intervention by circumcising their son, which is kind of a fascinating story. And when you look at it as all part of this big weaving of ideas, that's really what we're asking. How does this all connect? And finally, we have Moshe and Aharon meeting up, meaning meeting each other, and then confronting Paro, demanding the temporary release of the Jewish people so that they may go serve Hashem. And so the question is, how, how does all of this combine? And what is the Torah trying to convey as an overall approach to understanding the enslavement and the redemption? So I want to suggest a major premise regarding the purpose of the enslavement of the Jewish people as part of Hashem's treaty with Avraham at the Bris Ben Habisarim, the covenant between the parts. And that is indeed a major, major question. No matter how you cut it, we need to understand why the pro prophetic, providential destiny of the Jewish people is to go be slaves to someone for hundreds of years. That's what Hashem tells Abraham at the same time that Hashem is telling Abraham they're going to inherit this land and you know, they're, you're my people, etc. Why is enslavement so important and how is it kind of fair, <laughs> right? It's su such a difficult thing to understand that this is the destiny of the Jewish people from the outset. You know, we have typically an understanding that Avram maybe was incorrect 
in asking Hashem for a guarantee that the Jewish people would inherit it or a sign that the Jewish people would inherit the land. But that doesn't really begin to scratch the surface of the question that hundreds of thousands, millions of people end up as slaves as part of the promise that the Jewish people will inherit Eretz Israel. Oh, by the way, they're going to start off with hundreds of years and millions of people in slavery. So I want to suggest a major premise to everything we're discussing in today's shiur by suggesting that the only way we, we the Jewish people, become Hashem's people is by self-identifying differently than all pagan and false religious ideologies. And the simple premise is we must choose our identity in order to be Hashem's people. Now, we're going to talk about how this self-identification process happens, but the point is that to answer the question of why do the Jews go through all this is because it is absolutely critical for the formation of our people to clarify to ourselves and to the world that we are different because we subscribe to an ideology that was begun by our forefathers, that's a covenantal relationship between us and Hashem, the ultimate message which the ultimate message of which is mankind serves only Hashem. Simple as that. Mankind serves only Hashem. There's only one Hashem, creator of the world. We have a covenantal relationship with him. And the message to ourselves and the message to the world is that the only thing that we serve, the only ultimate value that there is, is whatever Hashem says. Now, this self-identifying takes place over this 400-year period that begins with the birth of Yitzchak. That's all part of being not settled in a land that doesn't belong to us, whether it's the land of Israel, the land of Mitzrayim, or any other land. And that in that entire limbo state, our forefathers, the tribes, their families, and even during the period in Egypt, we are self-identifying. That means we are choosing to be part of this mission that represents to ourselves and to the world, we serve only Hashem. Simple as that. Which is why the first thing that Moshe asks for the Jewish people is not to be free people, but it's to be free to go serve Hashem. That is the message. Now, as we mentioned, the self-identifying begins with the birth of Yitzchak and his circumcision, right? Circumcision is a major cog in this self-identification process. It's part of why Yosef keeps emphasizing circumcision to his brothers and continues, um, that's according to the rabbis, and he continues, this self-identifying continues with the parsing of Yitzchak away from Ishmael, Yaakov away from Esau, and the synergistic coalescing of Yosef and the brothers, that means the working together of Yosef and the brothers, and ultimately their successful bonding, which includes the tribes and their children, their descendants, all of which eventually mostly occurs in the land of Egypt. That means in the harshest of conditions, despite the fact that Yosef is the viceroy of Egypt and is completely accepted by the Egyptian people, the Jewish people retain their unique identity. And all of the brothers are committed to that. Hence, the Torah tells us 
that each man came down in our parsha. Each man, meaning each tribe member, came down with his household, with Yaakov, and that is how they existed in Egypt as a team. And therefore, the Torah describes the death of Yosef as the death of his brothers and all that generation because they lived together as a community and as a team. Now, to be a little specific, the monarchy, the reign of Yosef lasts 54 years after the death of Yaakov. And in that period, there is relative peace. Yes, the rabbis say that somehow the enslavement mentality begun. That needs an explanation. But uh, at the same time, Yosef was in charge. They were not actually slaves. There was no strategic plan to enslave them or to annihilate them. That only comes after the death of Yosef, as the Torah tells us very clearly in the beginning of our Parsha, which means that for that entire period of Yosef being the viceroy of Egypt, the Jewish people are living as a unique people unto themselves, committed to each other, and as we're suggesting, committed to that ultimate message and mission, we serve only Hashem. Now, the Torah is being amazing in how it's teaching us the key ingredients of self-identification. Of course, the Torah is amazing, so that's not surprising, but let's just pay attention to what it's saying. The key person that represents the identity of a Jew is Yosef Hatzadik. First of all, the book of Bereshis ends with the death of Yosef because he is a tremendous culmination to let us make man, which is the beginning of the book of Bereshis. So therefore we have a book describing from the beginning that the purpose of creation is man. Man is supposed to be in the image of Hashem. And the book concludes with the ultimate example of a man that achieves the dignity that the Torah is seeking for mankind. And that man is Yosef. Because Yosef represents the main building blocks of the identity of our nation. Absolute integrity, absolute morality, complete responsibility for others, both his brothers and the rest of the world, beginning with the Egyptian nation, plus the all-important messaging that Yosef does throughout his lifetime that all wisdom, all guidance, and all events come from Hashem. When the Yosef identity is lost, that's what the Torah is describing at the beginning of Shemos. Yes, we know that they came down as tribes. Yes, that they were 70. But what the Torah is describing in the beginning of Shemos is that the Yosef identity was alive and well as long as that generation was alive. And then that generation died out. That's new information. And then a new king arises over Egypt that does not know Yosef. Because when the Yosef identity is lost from our people, here comes the assimilation and the decay of values of our people. Here comes the anti-Semitism. Here comes the strategic plan to get rid of our nation because we have lost our identity that is represented by the Yosef morality, integrity, responsibility, care for others, and the messaging that everything is ultimately guided by Hashem in terms of wisdom, in terms of events, etc. So therefore, we enter the story of slavery by understanding that what is going to need to happen 
in order to be redeemed is to revitalize that very identity that Yosef represented and as a nation we lost. That's the story of the book of Shemos and it begins with this understanding. Yosef died, a new king arises over Egypt and there's an existential threat to the Jewish people. Now, if we look more deeply at our parsha, what we find is how a nation can revitalize itself to reestablishing the Yosef identity, what we're calling the ultimate dignity of a human being. You've already explained a few times what that is. And look what happens. One of the first things that's called into question is killing children, to which the Torah tells us that the women of the Jewish people were putting themselves on the line willingly to transgress the commandment of their king to kill these newborn boys. And because of that, Hashem grants them houses, batim, which means to say that in order for our nation to rebuild itself, the women must be so committed that even under the threat of severe harm or death, they are fighting for the survival of our people. That must be a critical ingredient. But let's talk about what that looks like today. Does it mean that, uh, God forbid, you know, women have to you know, say, oh, I'm going to kill myself in order to let my children live? Yeah, if it came to that. But more importantly today, it means that I don't put myself first. I do put my children first. Obviously, a woman needs to take care of themselves, but it means that they live with the understanding that their main mission that they're trying to do is to make sure that the Jewish children know their identity, know who they are through education and through being cared for and being uh, really loved, like the way Shifra and Yocheved uh, helped the, the newborn babies. That's the kind of commitment that will ultimately yield very healthy homes as we know, Yocheved builds with Amram. Look at the three children trifecta that the Yocheved and Amram relationship produce, Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam, because of the commitment that they have, that Yocheved has to the future of the Jewish people. Miriam has that also. She, of course, herself has a great descendancy. That is all part of what is critical to revitalizing our identity. Now, what's fascinating about the way the Torah describes the marriage of Yocheved and Amram is that it does not mention their names. It simply says, a man from the house of Levi went and married the daughter of Levi. Why is Levi so critical? So first of all, it's telling you, that our marriages need to be based on our ancestral values. Our marriages need to be based on what our generations before have taught us, right? They're attaching to the Levy mindset, to the Levy mindset, which was all part of the Yosef mission and identity as described at the beginning of the Parsha. But even more particularly, the name Levy comes from the fact that Leah said, that now that I've given birth to Yaakov three children, my husband will stay with me. He will be with me. He will be bonded with me. And herein lies a tremendous critical value of our nation's identity. 
our marriages must be built on healthy, vibrant, bonded relationships in order for us to raise the right children. That's the only way that we are going to raise children who understand the importance of their identity and live the mission of the Jew, which is to represent the dignity of mankind, the morality, the integrity, et cetera, everything that we've mentioned. It needs to be built on an incredibly healthy marriage. Part of the reason for that is because the only real way, as we all know, that there can be shalom between a man and a woman, a husband and wife, is when Hashem is in the equation. Because we are all committed to serving only Hashem, that the wife and the husband together put as their priority the service of Hashem. That's why they have children, and they raise the children to that end. They don't try to control one another. They don't try to assert their particular influence. They try to bond, as my father always explains, they merge into a new identity in which they are submitting to Hashem as their overarching mission and goal. And when that happens, the right children are born, as we just mentioned. And in this case, in particular, it's talking about the birth of Moshe Rabbeinu. That comes after the Torah describes that the man from the house of Levi went and took the daughter of Levi. Then Moshe is born because Moshe is going to live a life where he is completely dedicated to the mission of making it clear to the Jewish people and making it clear to the world that we only serve Hashem. You shall not have other gods, right? I am the Lord your God. Those are the first of the two of the Ten Commandments. And this is ultimately Moshe Rabbeinu bringing that to us and to the world. And so this particular marriage of the daughter of Levi, which means bonded relationship, to the man from the house of Levi, yields Moshe Rabbeinu, who senses internally the special nature of the Jewish people's identity. That's why he's so affected when the Mitzri is attacking the Jew so relentlessly, because he knows the importance of the Jew is to represent Hashem, to be a representative of being bonded with Hashem. And that's why it is a capital crime for a non-Jew to strike a Jew, as the Torah explains and you know, we learn in the commentaries on this story. He, Moshe Rabbeinu internalizes that despite the fact that he grows up in Pyro's house because ultimately his mother and his father trained him even in whatever interaction they had. It was built into his DNA, this recognition that a Jew is a person who serves only Hashem in a life that's completely committed to that with that understanding for themselves and representing that understanding to the world. So ultimately, this identity that we're describing, which is the dignity of mankind, it's not only that we want the world to know serve Hashem, it's we want the world to know how human beings are meant to live. Now, it's only true because we serve Hashem, but how are human beings meant to live? The answer is with dignity and freedom from tyranny and authoritarianism, the opposite of the Egyptian culture, the opposite of what uh, my good friend, uh, Dr. Joel Finkelstein likes to call the pyramid schemes, where somebody is getting sucked into a power structure, not realizing 
how they are being essentially enslaved. And uh, while we mentioned Dr. Finkelstein, let me just mention that his father's neshama should also have an aliyah. He is now uh, sitting shiva after his father's levaya yesterday, and we wish him well. So ultimately, this identity stands for the dignity and freedom for all mankind from tyranny and authoritarianism. That's part of the Jewish redemption story. And this is only true because only Hashem is the one authority and that mankind only serves Hashem. Mankind does not have a right to self-impose onto other men of the world. And that is represented by Hashem being the only authority that we serve. And the savior of the Jewish people, meaning the one that helps bring this identity fully into existence and help the Jewish people and the world has to step into the responsibility of making sure that both the Jewish people and the rest of mankind buy into this vision of humanity. But let me explain that a little bit further. You know, most of us, we read this story and it almost seems to conclude that Hashem is arguing with Moshe Rabbeinu and Moshe Rabbeinu is saying, no, Hashem, you know, I'm not going to go send it. Uh, let somebody else go. Send, send someone else to go. And we all are astonished. How can Moshe Rabbeinu say such a thing? Like, you know, normally we think God appears to you and it says to do something, you know, jump, you know, you say, how high? Right? You don't think twice about what God tells you to do. And of course, not Moshe Rabbeinu. And according to the rabbis, this was an argument that lasted over several days. And there was even a consequence that happens to Moshe Rabbeinu. But I suggest it's not that hard to understand when we understand that being this quote-unquote savior of the Jewish people cannot be done by being forced into the role. You know, sure, a person can go through the motions of what Hashem tells them. Let's say Hashem appeared to us and said, okay, I want you to give all your money away to so-and-so. We might do it, but internally we'll be railing against it, right? We're not going to do it happily, most of us, right? Now, that's much easier to do that than to take on the responsibility to help convince the Jewish people that their mission is alive and well, and they should awaken themselves to the covenant of the forefathers and to being this nation that represents the true dignity of mankind, of morality and responsibility, and that we only serve Hashem and practically do everything necessary to get ready to serve Hashem, which ultimately means to get ready to leave Egypt. We know how hard that is. And Moshe Rabbeinu has to willingly step into that role. Not just, well, Hashem told me to do it, so, okay, I'm going to do it. No, that's what the, the, the sentences, the 40 sentences in the Torah are describing, is Moshe Rabbeinu adjusting himself to this new level of responsibility where he's choosing to enter into this role. And we all know how difficult the next 40 years are for Moshe Rabbeinu. That is no easy task. And therefore, the Torah is describing to us what is necessary for us today. Most of us feel like giving up on the world. We feel like giving up on all these morons that don't understand the truth that, you know what, Israel is actually not an apartheid state. We feel like giving up on the world that can't stand up for us when we have been brutalized viciously. So we kind of want to retreat and just forget about everyone else. And of course, uh, for our fellow Jews that somehow don't seem to understand the 
very difficult uh, segments that we have in our nation that don't know better. We also have this sense of like throwing up our hands and giving up. But the Torah is telling us that if you want the redemption to come, you need to step into the responsibility like Yocheved and Miriam, like Amram and Yocheved, like Moshe. They were not dealing with an easy group of people, people. If you want to revitalize our identity, you need the people that are going to literally dedicate and sacrifice themselves to achieving that mission. But the beautiful thing that emerges is that the real tapestry of the Parsha is the concept of Jewish home and family. It starts with Jewish identity that starts at home. The tribes, each one came down with his bias, with his home. Yocheved and Miriam sacrificed for the sake of the children. God grants them homes. The daughter of Levi married the man from the house of Levi. And they build a home of children of Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam. And then what happens? Moshe does step in to his responsibility. He says, yes, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Yes, Hashem. Okay, ultimately, Moshe Rabbeinu does choose into it. And he does go. And he takes his wife and children with him to go. And he's so committed to that mission of saving the Jewish people that he seems to temporarily forget that he needs to circumcise his own newborn son. And for that, the Torah tells us he's under the threat of death, that an angel of Hashem comes to kill him. And what saves him? His wife, his Midianite wife, that chose to be married to him, that he in turn saved earlier, saves him and reminds him, Moshe Rabbeinu, before you can save anyone else, your family, your home, needs to be absolutely bonded with Hashem. Your children need to be circumcised when they need to be circumcised before you can run off and save the Jewish people. So it's Moshe's marriage to Sipporah that's brought into relief with the rescuing of Moshe through circumcising their son. Because Moshe and his family cannot rescue anyone unless their family is first and foremost fully bonded with Hashem as represented by Bris Mila. And let's remember, it all begins with Bris, the covenant with Avram between the parts, Yitzchak's birth and Yitzchak's first Mila, and it concludes over here that now the Jewish people are ready to be rescued because we have a leader that was molded by all of these ideas that we've described, the identity of Yosef, Yocheved and, and Amram, Moshe Rabbeinu's own willingness, Zipporah, what he does for Zipporah and her family, and all of that sets the stage for the ultimate redemption of which the Torah will speak in the next few parashiyas. So, to revitalize our Jewish identity today, first and foremost, we must see the Yosef identity. That has to be the picture, the role model, role model picture in front of us that we have to live up to. Now, we all know it's extremely hard to be 100% impeccable in business and never to take anything that doesn't belong to us, even when it feels a little justified. And to be 100% moral, even in the face of tremendous temptations. And to represent to the world that Hashem is in charge and everything that we have that's good and any wisdom that we have, any advice that we give comes from Hashem. This is extremely hard, but that is the identity that we must buy into if we are going to revitalize our people. 
Number two, we need to be ready to die to help our people survive. How tremendous it is today that we are blessed to see that our nation contains so many of these people that are going to the front lines willingly with that threat on them. That's an amazing, not only testament, but it's actually an amazing factor in rebuilding and refurbishing, revitalizing our identity today. Number three, we must build our homes and families on a bonded husband and wife relationship. One of the most important things to build a healthy home and family is for everybody to be thinking selflessly rather than selfishly. In order for a husband and wife to really bond and to have real happiness, they actually need to come together with a sense of a higher purpose, a higher mission to which they give themselves over and they're not each one trying to satisfy their own uh, desires, their own sense of what's uh, important. They have to be working together and giving themselves over to deciding together what Hashem says is important. And that's the way to raise children that will actually love Judaism. My friend Joseph Rackman actually shared with me today an article that describes the happiness of the people of the state of Israel. And it's an astonishing thing because, you know, uh, the members of the Israeli society for all the decades have been drafted into the army. And you compare that fact with the fact that most of, you know, the last several decades in the United States of America and many other wealthy countries, the draft has not been mandatory. Nonetheless, the happiness factor in the land of Israel is much higher. And they talk about the reasons for that and you know, forgetting about how they measure that exactly. One of the major reasons is because of the focus of family. There's a tremendous family focus in Israel in general. There's a tremendous amount of attention uh, paid to you know, what's necessary and good and healthy for children. So there's a tremendous focus on family. And in addition, there's a concept that we're part of something bigger than, than, than us and we can contribute to something that is bigger than us i.e. we have purpose, and that yields also tremendous happiness. So when we build the right homes and we have that focus in our society, our greater society in which we live, buys into that, it has a tremendous impact towards many important and good things, such as happiness, building families, and ultimately being able to to bond together for that greater purpose. So we need to see the Yosef identity as our role model. We need to be ready to die to help our people survive. We need to build homes the correct way. All of this we're getting from our Parsha. And we need to be the leaders, the ones that are stepping into the daunting tasks of leadership roles. Nobody wants to do it, but that's what we need to do. Everybody wants to say, Listen, let somebody else be in charge. I'll help out, you know, but somebody else be in charge. That's what Shlach Nabiatishlach is saying. Let somebody else be in charge. Ultimately, Moshe Rabbeinu recognizes that he has to be in charge, and Aaron is only helping him. He's not helping Aaron. So we have to step into the daunting tasks of leadership roles that clarify to our own people and to the world that it is only Hashem that mankind shall serve. And finally, we need to make sure that first, our families are fully bonded with Hashem before we can really be ready to step into those leadership roles. And so the Torah goes out of its way to tell us the story of the circumcision of the child of Moshe and Zipporah, and that Zipporah is the one 
to save Moshe Rabbeinu, but it means that Moshe and Zipporah were both ready to do everything necessary to make sure that they were focusing properly on their children and that their marriage was committed to that. And Moshe Rabbeinu, you know, ultimately, of course, I'm sure came to appreciate Zipporah from that. And then Moshe is ready to go with Aharon to confront Pyro and say, it's time for the world to know that we Jewish people serve only Hashem. And ultimately, that will be a message, a message to the rest of the world that everybody should serve only Hashem. Questions or comments? Thanks, Akiva. Thank See you, you next time. Yeah. Okay, great. Yes, just, we have a question in the room. Just wondering, like, what Aaron's... We didn't really, like, mention Aaron and, uh, like, what his... Yeah. The question is about the role of Aharon in the parsha, and certainly uh, one of the major things that um, Aharon um, does in the parsha is be incredibly accepting and joyous uh, at the nomination and appointing of Moshe as the leader of the Jewish people, which also tells you a lot about the fact that even though he's the older brother, the older of the two. He's not looking for a position. He is looking for the job to get done, which is what uh, everybody who's committed to Hashem really needs to be. That that needs to be the attitude. So I think that's part of the greatness of Aharon as well. He immediately accepts the role as sort of second fiddle, uh, even though he's the older, and he's actually overjoyed about it. So I think that's a it's a very it's a very good point. Anyone else? Um, I had a question. Um, yes. Hi. Um, so what, like, in terms of the role, like, what about parents who have kids who have gone off the derech? Like, you know, you have a lot of parents, even from the firmest homes that are dealing with... Um, that's what I'm supposed to do, is tell you. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you have parents, you know, who who started, you know, who raised their kids with this mission and then but the world is what it is and and they have one, two, they have a whole bunch of kids that are dealing with, I mean, the worst of the worst. Um, you know, Hasidish families where where like the kids are, you know, their own personal kids are covered in tattoos and are not Shomer Shabbos. And, and so what, like, how does one understand that in terms of what you've shared? Okay, great. So, look, that's obviously a very hard question, a very painful question, um, and it needs an answer. I think that the answers are kind of multifaceted. Obviously, no situations, you know, we can't compare situations, we can't overgeneralize. Uh, but I do think that a very Jewish concept is that um, we need to fix ourselves before we fix other people, and that parents and children are really symbiotic and because of that we can have a tremendous influence on our children uh, by working on ourselves so one element is okay what did we do to get us here including did we have a negative effect on our children possible and i'm saying every situation is different um, but even if we did not which you know hopefully is the case a lot of the time and they the children made their own choices because we have to recognize that too right that children have their own choice we can still have a tremendous impact by continuing to work on ourselves because there's a, a symbiotic relationship that will definitely yield positive results um, in creating uh, 
um, some at least openness maybe on the parts of our children, a bonded relationship with our children, many, many good things come from the parent working on themselves. In addition uh, to all of that is that we have to um, think about the next generations, not only our children. And so what I mean by that is it's really important to maintain the relationship with the children for whatever reason that it came about the way that it was, uh, one of the tendencies in, in these situations is to throw up our hands and to say, okay, we're just cut off. We have nothing to do with them. And I think that's a huge mistake as well. Uh, so I think that's another important fact is to maintain relationship and not only to help them, but also to help whatever God willing uh, may come later in you know their, their children's you know, uh, outcomes and you know, the next generations. And then lastly, you know, we can never answer the question of why do bad things happen to good people? And we're not going to try to answer that question. Uh, but we are going to say that we are meant to have that challenge and to grow from that challenge and to help other people with that challenge, like every challenge that we have. And that's another uh, real positive outcome that can happen. And then finally, it is worth on an individual basis uh, having a relationship with the Rav and going through from time to time, what are the things that might make sense to do now? Because, you know, these situations are ever evolving, ever volatile in various ways. And a person undergoing any severe and difficult uh, situation like that should be taking regular advice because, you know, it's as things change, the approaches need to also change. I do think that as a nation, uh, you know, the, uh, just a more general comment, as a nation, we are facing that problem because we have lost the Yosef identity. I do think, you know, one of the, the diukim that I realized this year is Chazal tell us that they didn't change their clothing, they didn't change their names, and they didn't change their language. It doesn't say anything about the fact that they didn't change their behaviors. Right? So they seem to have kept these external identifying markers, Right? But when it came to acting with the integrity and morality of a Jew, we don't know that they did, right? Because I'll never say they didn't, you know, misbehave. They just said they didn't change their clothing, their identities, you know, their language and their names. Well, what about their actions? What did they do? How did they choose? So I think that's what happens when we lose the Osef identity. We might retain some of the cultural outward appearances, but the question is, are we really choosing with integrity inside our homes? I think that's a very important question. Thank you. Sure. Anyone else? So I think if we're up to the last question, uh, Rabbi Phil, are you ready? Yeah. Okay. So um, just to add to what you said, I I wanted to jibe it, but you just coming off your last comment. Um, it's the Alkut brings down that Timoleho or it's awesome. The land filled up with them. It says they went to all the theaters and circuses. Mm. So, it, uh, first of all, that shows your question. You know, what did they do? But also the assimilationist as aspect that they involved themselves in the entertainment activities of the non-Jews. Okay, very good, very very good, Shkayef. Thank you. Okay, excellent. Uh, wish everybody a great day. B'surah tov us to all. And uh, God willing, uh, you know, we should continue to see good things for Kuala Israel and an end to this current crisis.